the headlines tonight. Nationalist and Republican forces both quit after fatal battle of the Corona Road. Victoria Cross set up in Australia, country's first Commonwealth Wombat medal. And Green Bay, Packers defeat Kansas City Chiefs in championship game of American football. Diabos ganz Plus, don't miss out on an exclusive from our celebrity chef, how to make cookies using just broken hearts and spider web. Those are the headlines. Shoot me if I carry on like this. News bang. Setting the record straight, then bending it backwards again. Atai Sui, 1937. The year was 1937, and the Spanish Civil War raged on like a bull in a china shop. General Francisco Franco, known as El Café con Leche, led his nationalist forces against the Republicans who were running out of both republics and cans to be in. The Second Battle of the Corona Road was upon us, a dusty affair that would go down in history, or at least make it into the footnotes. The nationalists' plan was simple, cut off the road to isolate Madrid like a salami sandwich without any mustard. But the Republicans had other ideas, launching a counteroffensive so fierce it made bullfighting look like patter cake. Commanded by Generalissimo Two Hats Garcia, they charged with such vigor that even their donkeys looked surprised. Eyewitnesses described scenes of chaos as bullets flew faster than flies around a feria hog roast. One bystander, Pedro El Loco, said, It was loco. I haven't seen such carnage since my wife cooked paella. In the end, neither side emerged victorious, but instead settled for an uneasy tapas truce before resuming hostilities later. As for Madrid? Well, she remained untouched, much like her virgin olive oil reserve. Uh, 1991. In a move that has rocked the Commonwealth, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who reigned for longer than a loaf of Warburtons, has signed off on a new gong for the Aussies. The Victoria Cross for Australia will now be their highest award for not getting eaten by spiders or run over by kangaroos. The decision has been met with mixed reactions down under, with one dingo tamer saying, Fair dinkum. About time we had our own medal for not dying in this bloody outback. The letters patent, which were delivered via carrier pigeon and a treacherous journey through the outback, make it clear that only those who display fair-go bravery in the face of certain death by crocodile or shrimp on the barbie can receive this prestigious boomerang. One koala bear said, It's about time we stopped sharing honours with those poms. I mean, have you seen their cricket team lately? The change means that brave Aussies like Bruce Crocodile Dundee and Sheila Jellyfish Stinger Survivor Smith can now be rightfully honoured in their own backyard. God save the Queen. I mean, God save us all from drop bears. 1967. On this day in 1967, the Green Bay Packers and the Kansas City Chiefs met in the first ever Super Bowl. The Packers from Wisconsin were led by legendary coach Vince Lombardi, who had a face like a slapped ass. The Chiefs from Missouri were coached by Hank Stram, who looked like he'd just swallowed a wasp. The game kicked off to a packed crowd at the Los Angeles Coliseum. Early on, it was clear this would be a David and Goliath story, with Goliath being the Packers and David being, also, the Packers. Quarterback Bart Starr threw for two touchdowns and ran for another as Green Bay raced into a 21-nist-all lead at halftime. In the second half, 
things went from bad to worse for Kansas City. Their quarterback, Len Dawson, spent more time on his backside than an L.A. waitress. Meanwhile, Elijah Pitts and Jim Taylor added further touchdowns for Green Bay to seal a 35-10 victory. Afterward, Lombardi said, We came here to win one for all the cheeseheads back home. Stram simply replied, We got our asses kicked. A fitting end to an era where men were men and padding was optional. News bang. Holding back. Nothing but secrets that are ours to keep. And now, Shakanaka Giles, with a rundown of the day's meteorological offerings. Tomorrow, as we gallivant into mid-January, the British Isles will be donning a frosty hat indeed. Expect Jack Frost to be nipping up more than just your nose in Yorkshire, with temperatures dropping lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut. A proper brass monkey's morning. Down in, in London town, the fog's rolling in like a lost tourist on the tube, thick and disorienting. It'll be pea super that could hide an entire parade of double-decker buses. And for those venturing up to the Scottish Highlands, wrap up snug as a bug in a rug. Snow is on the cards, flurrying down like confetti at a winter wedding. Perfect for snowmen aspiring to join the ranks of Frosty or Olaf. In summary, chilly willy frost, pea super fog and snowman auditions are plenty. And that's all the weather. Nineteen seventy-five. Today marks the anniversary of a significant event in Angola's history, as we remember the Alvor Agreement signed in 1975. This agreement brought an end to the Angolan War of Independence and granted Angola its independence from Portugal. The complex political landscape involved nationalist factions UNITA, MPLA and FNLA. The Alvor Agreement was a pivotal moment in Angola's journey towards self-governance yet it was not without its challenges. Following the agreement, tensions between UNITA and MPLA escalated into a civil war that lasted until 2002. Brian Bastable is on the line now to provide us with more insights into this tumultuous period in Angola's history. The clock strikes midnight, and in the year of our Lord, 1975, we find ourselves plunged into the heart of darkness. In front of me lies a man in tatters, clothes torn asunder and limbs at all angles. This is the life of war. This is a time when history itself takes a giant leap forward. We're here in Angola. You might have heard of it before. It's one of those places that you can't quite remember where it is on the map until someone reminds you that it was once under Portuguese rule. But now, my friends, all that has changed. The people have spoken and their voices are united in one clear message. Portugal out. Independence now. And so it came to pass that on this fateful day, as the sun dipped below the horizon and night descended upon us like a cloak of velvet darkness, an agreement was reached between three major factions, UNITA, led by Jonas Savimbi, MPLA under Agostinho Neto, and FNLA, helmed by Holden Roberto. 
these men were warriors bound together by a common cause, freedom from colonial oppression. As I stand here amidst ruins left behind by years of warfare, ruins filled with bodies both young and old, I can hear faint whispers on the wind telling tales of hope for a brighter future free from tyranny. But be warned, these are treacherous times fraught with danger at every turn as these brave souls embark upon uncharted waters, guided only by their unwavering belief in liberty or death. From deep within these battle-scarred trenches comes Brian Bastable reporting live for Newsbang. 1974 In a chilling reminder of humanity's darker impulses, the year 1974 bore witness to the gruesome exploits of Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK Killer. Over a span of seven years, Rader went on a spree of violence that would leave ten innocent souls in its wake. The state of Kansas bore witness to this grim spectacle, with women bearing the brunt of Rada's twisted desires. His modus operandi was as chilling as it was macabre, binding his victims before subjecting them to suffocation or strangulation. The moniker BTK stood for Bind, Torture, Kill, a chilling acronym that would become synonymous with Raider's name. And now, Ken Shit brings us more on this gruesome tale from the heartland of America. Good evening, you filthy maggots. As we delve into the dark recesses of history, let's take a moment to remember the year 1974, a time when the world was still young and innocent, and serial killers were just getting started. Enter Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK Killer. This twisted son of a bitch murdered at least 10 people between 1974 and 1991 in Kansas. He had a particular taste for women, binding and suffocating or strangling them like some kind of demented puppeteer. Rader was no ordinary psychopath. He took pride in his work, even sending taunting letters to the police detailing his gruesome exploits. He was like some kind of demonic mastermind, always one step ahead of law enforcement. But eventually, justice caught up with him. In 2005, after more than two decades on the run, Raider was finally arrested and sentenced to life in prison without parole. And while his victims can never be brought back, at least their families can find some solace knowing that this monster is behind bars where he belongs. So let this be a lesson to all you sick fucks out there. No matter how clever you think you are, there's always someone smarter who will put an end to your reign of terror. Ken Shit signing off from Newsbang. 13. 1943. It's the year 1943, and we find ourselves in the midst of a global conflict that would later be immortalized as World War II. Enter the Pentagon, a monolithic structure that serves as the nerve center for the United States Department of Defense. With a staggering 2.87 million employees under its wing, it's no wonder this building is often used interchangeably with the concept of national security itself. This titanic edifice, larger than any other office building on Earth at the time, is home to a multitude of agencies and functions related to defense and military forces. Its mission is clear, deter potential adversaries and ensure national security. Now joining us from this bastion of military might is our reporter Hardeman Pesto, Martin, I'm here at the Pentagon, the nerve center of America's war machine. There's a real feeling of urgency here today with the latest developments in Europe. I've just spoken with General Chesty Puller, head of the Marine Corps, who gave me a tour of the building. Let me get this straight, Pesto. 
You managed to get access to the Pentagon? Yes, I did. Top-level clearance. General Puller took me into the war room himself. The war room at the Pentagon? Isn't that one of the most restricted areas in the entire complex? Usually, yes. But the general and I really hit it off. He even let me sit in his chair and pretend to be in charge for a minute. You sat in the seat of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? The one currently occupied by General George C. Marshall? That's the one. Great view from there, let me tell you. Did General Puller happen to mention that he's been dead for over 35 years? He died back in 1946. Well, he looked pretty spry for a dead guy. We had a great chat about the new P-80 jet fighters. The shooting star wasn't even in service until 1944. This is nonsense. Maybe for you, Martin, but I was there. I saw the planes. I talked to Paula. Guess you just had to be in the room. The room that doesn't exist yet. I swear, pesto. The rubbish you come out with. Who'd have thought the Pentagon would be your Waterloo? Waterloo? I didn't see any water there. It was all concrete and filing cabinets. You know what I mean. It's a complete disaster. You've lost all credibility, man. I don't think so, Martin. My viewers trust me. We have a connection. A connection to Fantasyland, maybe. I think we're done here. Pesto, thank you. News bang. Squaring up to the quagmire of narratives. And now, a look back at the year 1967 when football was just football and Super Bowl I saw the Green Bay Packers triumph over the Kansas City Chiefs. Ryder Boff brings us a nostalgic report. Uh, the year is 1967, a time when men were men and football was, well, still just football. The Green Bay Packers, those titans of the turf from Wisconsin, locked horns with the Kansas City Chiefs in what would be christened Super Bowl I. It was a clash of the titans, a real David and Goliath story if David had been fed on cheese for his entire life and Goliath had been barbecuing brisket. And there they are on the field of battle. The Packers, more packed than my Aunt Mabel's suitcase on her way to Benidorm. And the Chiefs, proud as peacocks with helmets. The ball is up like a New Year's Eve balloon, and we're off. It's a tussle tougher than trying to get into my girdle after Christmas dinner. The Packers steamrolled over the Chiefs with all the grace of an elephant in ballet shoes. By Jove, it was 35-10 at full-time whistleblow. You could say they were cheesed off in Kansas City that night. I remember covering a game back then. It was so cold my words froze mid-air and I had to defrost them by the fire to hear what I'd said. A simpler time indeed. And speaking of cold days, let me tell you about another icy encounter from 67. During a half-time at Wembley Stadium, or as I like to call it, the old frozen cauldron, I found myself engaged in an impromptu ice skating session thanks to some spilled bovril and sub-zero temperatures. My pirouette earned sixes across the board from an imaginary panel of judges but left me with a bruised coccyx that haunted me for weeks. But back to our American friends. Those Packers went down in history faster than Uncle Bertie's homemade moonshine at a family do. Vince Lombardi lifted that trophy high enough for even little Timmy Turner. You know Timmy Turner? No? Never mind. On his father's shoulders to see. That game set things rolling for what would become America's Sunday religion, Super Bowl Sunday. And now every year we gather around our televisions like druids at Stonehenge waiting for magic or at least one decent commercial break. I've been Ryder Boff reminiscing about times when sideburns were long and shorts were short.
Our correspondent, Penelope Winchime, who's reporting from a frosty corner of Regent's Park, brings us this chilling tale from history. Good evening, I'm Penelope Winchime, and as the moon kisses the horizon with a frosty peck, let us skate back to 1867. A year etched in the annals of history for a chilling tragedy on the icy bosom of Regent's Park Lake. The ice, like a treacherous glass floor beneath the feet of unsuspecting Londoners, shattered, plunging forty souls into a watery abyss. How the elements conspired to weave this tapestry of sorrow. The park's lake became a siren, luring skaters with its crystalline surface only to betray them with its fragility. In response to this frigid catastrophe, the lake underwent a transformation akin to a caterpillar into a butterfly, a metamorphosis designed to cradle future skaters rather than consume them. And so, ice skating continued to pirouette across both nature's frozen tears and mankind's chilly creations. Let us remember that day when winter's breath turned from a gentle whisper into a howling spectre of doom, and as we glide on our modern rinks, Spare a thought for those who danced their last waltz upon the treacherous stage of Regent's Park. I'm Penelope Winchime. May your evenings be evergreen and less slippery than yesteryear's follies. Tonight, we delve into the archives of aviation mishaps, monumental dam constructions, maritime mayhem, and the advent of modern public transport. Fasten your seatbelts as we traverse time and space with Polly Beep. 2009. It's a right old mess over the Hudson River. Seems a gaggle of Canada geese decided to take their lives in their beaks and cause quite the ruckus for US Airways Flight 1549. The plane had to make an emergency landing and now the river's clogged with all sorts of feathery debris. Best avoid the area if you can. 1910. Well, isn't that just grand? The Buffalo Bill Dam has been completed in Wyoming, making it the tallest dam in the world. The Shoshone River is now held back by this magnificent structure, so if you're planning on taking a dip, you might want to reconsider. Now we've got reports of some peculiar traffic situations across the pond. In 1769, a certain Captain James Cook has discovered New Zealand. This means new trade routes and potential travel opportunities for us all. Just remember to pack your sunscreen and your sense of adventure. Fast forward to 1838 and we've got the first transatlantic steamship crossing under our belts. This means faster travel between Europe and America, but also increased congestion at sea. So if you're planning a voyage anytime soon, be prepared for some nautical nose-to-tail action. And finally, let's not forget the year 1863, when the first underground railway opened in London. This revolutionary mode of transportation has made getting around the city a breeze, provided you don't mind being packed in like sardines during rush hour. This is Polly Beep, wishing you safe travels and plenty of adventurous detours along the way. 1885. 1885 was a year that saw the birth of Snowflake Bentley. Calamity Prenderville reports. Today, we're stepping back in time to 1885, a year that saw the birth of Snowflake Bentley. No, not the fluffy white substance that blankets our roads and causes havoc during winter, but a man named Wilson Bentley who had a fascination with snowflakes. 
Bentley was like a magician, capturing snowflakes in his camera before they disappeared into thin air. He was the first person to photograph these delicate little crystals, giving us a glimpse into their unique and intricate designs. Snowflakes are like tiny pieces of art, each one different from the next. Who would have thought that such simple things could be so complex? But Bentley didn't stop there. He classified these snowflakes into eight broad categories and at least 80 individual variants. That's more than your average British tax system. His work has been instrumental in understanding the science behind snowfall and ice formation. Now you might be wondering how he managed to capture these fleeting moments. Well, Bentley used a view camera, which is like a super-sized Polaroid camera from the 1980s. It's quite an impressive piece of kit for its time. Just think about it. Capturing snowflakes on film before they melt away or sublimate into nothingness. It's like trying to hold onto a rainbow or catching a shooting star in your hands. It's pure magic. In conclusion, let's raise a toast to Snowflake Bentley and his remarkable contributions to science and photography. His work has given us a new appreciation for these tiny wonders of nature. Who knows what other British innovations are waiting to be discovered? Only time will tell. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. Newsbang, a stitch in Time Saves Nine from Deceiving. Sandy O'Shaughnessy recounts a royal moment in 1991 when Queen Elizabeth II signs letters patent establishing the Victoria Cross for Australia, granting her realm its own highest military honour. Ah, a very good evening to you all. Welcome, welcome and thrice welcome to the Royal Court of Sandy O'Shaughnessy. As the clock strikes seven and the twinkling lights of Dublin cast their enchanting glow over the Emerald Isle, let's embark on another delightful journey through the annals of history. So, settle in, pour that second cup of tea, and let's revel in the regal riches that await us. <laughs> now, dear listeners, we find ourselves in the year 1991, a time when Queen Elizabeth II was reigning supreme over her kingdoms like a true queen bee, and what a reign it was. Over 70 years of grace, elegance, and, oh yes, the occasional stirring of scandal. But today, we celebrate a particularly momentous occasion, one that would forever change the course of Australian history. Ah. <laughs> On this very day in 1991, her Majesty signed letters, patent instituting the Victoria Cross for Australia. Now, if you're anything like me, and I hope you are, you're wondering what exactly letters patent are. Well, my dear friends, they're legal instruments issued by a monarch, granting an office or right or title. Think of them as royal decrees with a touch of flair and finesse. And this particular decree was quite significant indeed. Ah. You see, before this glorious day in 1991, Australia had been relying on the British Victoria Cross for its highest military honour. But not anymore. With Queen Elizabeth II's signature on those letters patent, Australia became the first Commonwealth realm to have its very own separate Victoria Cross award. Talk about making history. And what better way to celebrate this momentous occasion than with a hearty hip hip hooray for our beloved Queen Elizabeth II. She truly was a monarch 
who knew how to make her mark on history while still managing to keep things light-hearted and fun along the way. Ah. <laughs> so here's to Her Majesty. May her legacy continue to inspire generations to come. And as always, at Newsbank Towers, where we take history seriously, but never too seriously, remember, life is but a tapestry woven with threads of laughter and learning alike. Until we meet again in Tales and Tunes, see you later, alligator, in a while, crocodile. Nineteen eighty one. The year is nineteen eighty one, and a television revolution is brewing in the land of the free. Enter Hill Street Blues, an American police procedural drama that will soon become a staple in households across the nation. The show, which follows the lives of a police station staff in a large city, has already made waves with its pilot episode, Hill Street Station. The critics are singing praises, and the awards are piling up like stacks of unsolved cases on a detective's desk. The question on everyone's lips, will this be the show that redefines television as we know it? Only time will tell. Now let's hand over to our reporter Smithsonian Moss for more on this groundbreaking series. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, my culture vultures. It's your high priestess of pop, Smithsonian Moss sliding into your evening with a blast from the past that's sure to make your mullet spin. We're throwing it back to 1981 when shoulder pads were big and the drama was bigger. I'm talking about the one, the only, Hill Street Blues. Now picture this. The streets are gritty. The cops are gritty. Hell, even the dirt is gritty. Hill Street Blues rolls up on the scene like a cop car with a flat tire. You can't ignore it, and it's kind of annoying but you just gotta see what happens next. The pilot episode, Hill Street Station, hits the airwaves, and boom. It's like TV had a baby with a crime novel, and that baby won all the awards at the baby pageant. The show's got more drama than a high school prom queen. It's like, hey, let's take every cop cliche, throw it in a blender, and pour it out on prime time. And the critics? They ate it up like it was the last donut at the precinct. We're talking Emmy Awards out the wazoo, people. But let's get real. Hill Street Blues was more than just a show. It was a vibe. It was like if Cheers met The Wire and they had a love child that was raised by the A-Team. It had that raw, unfiltered look at the boys in blue that made you feel like you were right there in the station, spilling coffee on your reports and dodging bullets on your lunch break. And the characters... Oh, honey, they were as messed up as a soup sandwich. You had Captain Ferrillo trying to keep the peace like a hall monitor at a biker rally. Then there's Sergeant Esterhouse with his, let's be careful out there, like he's sending his kids off to summer camp in a war zone. So, here's to Hill Street Blues, the show that taught us the streets are tough, the world is rough, and if you're a cop in a TV drama, you better have a damn good therapist on speed dial. Until next time, keep your badges polished, and your nightsticks at the ready. Smithsonian Moss. Over and out. News Bang, The Daily Dose. A double shot of knowledge half funny. 1933. 
In the year 1933, a most extraordinary event unfolded in the quaint village of Banneux, nestled within the verdant heart of Belgium. A teenage girl named Mariette Beco reported several apparitions of the Virgin Mary who identified herself as Our Lady of the Poor. These divine encounters were nothing short of a miracle, as they offered solace and relief from suffering to those who bore witness. This astonishing tale has captured the imagination of believers and skeptics alike, sparking debates on faith, reality and the nature of divine interventions. As we delve deeper into this fascinating story, we invite you to join us on this journey through time and space. Now reporting from Banner is Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. The producer just slipped me a note mentioning today marks the anniversary of the first Banner's apparition. Banner, Belgium that is, not to be confused with Bannockburn, an easy mistake for an Englishman like myself. Now I can't claim deep familiarity with the particulars, but the gist is that back in 1933, a young lass named Mariette Baco saw a vision of the Virgin Mary, called herself the Virgin of the Poor, apparently, and offered words of comfort. Now Belgium's not a place I've spent much time, but I did visit a few years back for a school chum's wedding. The groom was a cheerful Belgian chap named Jean-Claude Boulangerie. We called him Croissant, for short. Anyway, the wedding was held in this lovely little village church just outside Spa. The morning of the ceremony, I decided to take a constitutional and appreciate the local scenery. Well, I got a bit lost on the wind in country lanes. After an hour, I spotted a gaggle of nuns walking ahead and hurried to ask directions. As I approached, the head nun turned and I found myself staring face to face with a ghostly visage under the white habit ghastly pale skin, sunken eyes and quite the largest nose I'd ever seen. I must have yelped because she broke into a cackle of laughter. Turns out it was a prank, nose and glasses disguise. Her compatriots joined in the revelry as she lifted the facade to reveal a friendly, pinch-cheeked local woman beneath. Still chuckling, they pointed me back towards the village and waved goodbye. I barely made it to the church on time, but the look on Croissant's face as I slid into the pew just before the organ struck up was well worth the shortcut through the cow pasture. I can laugh about it now, but that nun gave me quite the turn at the time. I suppose it just goes to show one never knows what surprises life will spring upon you even in the most pious places. I'd take a phantom virgin over a prankster nun any day. At least the spirits tend to be more understanding if you're late. Right, well I'm off to grab a nip of the sacramental wine before the next segment. Cheerio! And just time for a swift glance at tomorrow's papers. Yanks spank Spaniards at Cape St. Vincent, that's the Times. The Express lead with Adolf Hitler and cronies install selves in Berlin sewer. The Daily Mail opt for American hero shows a sticks, his neck out and wins war medal. There's a photo there of a man named Herbie. That's it. Goodbye from us, and may your underpants never let you down. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>